Osiris. Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're tuned in to The Show on the Road, a new podcast where I interview songwriters, band leaders, and musicians from around the world. My name is Zach Lupiton. This week on the show, my conversation with a Scottish-born singer-songwriter and pop hitmaker who has made a name for himself since he's moved to the States with a series of increasingly personal, poetically powerful, and daringly political-charged albums, Greg Holden. I'll be the first to tell you, I'm not the biggest fan of the pop music of our day, when my folks were growing up, they had the Beatles and the Stones and the Beach Boys and Miles Davis and Mingus and Joni and Dylan and Credence and Aretha. And today, let's take a look at the charts, shall we? Look, there's Justin Bieber and Ariana Grande and Daddy Yankee and Chainsmokers and Drake and Lil Nas X. Look, I know I sound old and backwards, and there is some incredible music coming out now. But let me tell you, when it comes to the music that is loved and appreciated on a mass scale, music that really is doing something in history. I feel constantly that I was born in the wrong time. But every now and again, I get to meet the people like Greg who are making the music that you hear every day, filtering through supermarket PA systems and in car radios and on TV commercials and out of my mom's playlist, and it changes my mind a little bit about the pop music of our day. Greg is in an interesting spot because he makes music for himself, but he also makes it for this big, hungry world that needs release and hooks and stars. While he's had the privilege of being signed to major labels, he's also slowly taken himself off of social media, and he openly questions the need for this toxic digital society we trapped ourselves in. So in many ways, Greg Holden is a conundrum of a songwriter. He writes songs that are so intimate and personal, and yet so catchy and shiny and big like you could be shouting along with your friends going down the escalator at the mall and I don't know how you do that look at Greg's song Boys in the Street for example it's been streamed nearly 20 million times and yet it's about a father questioning his son kissing boys in the street and how his son being gay is going to affect his whole family this is what pop music is doing right now and I never really realized that until recently, that pop music now is more politically charged and active and raw and personal than ever before. I just haven't been listening deep enough. And of course, there's that acoustic pop blockbuster that Greg co-wrote for the American Idol Wonder Kid Philip Phillips 
that's been listened to over 120 million times. Home, you've heard it. And I was like, well, Greg Holden probably has a nice car and a nice hairdo, and that's all there is to that. But then Greg talked about it a little bit more. And you know what? That song is about losing a friend to suicide. Probably the last thing that he thought would ever get chosen to be an American Idol finale song. And I read that Greg and some friends, they started a nonprofit to make people more aware about mental illness and that folks aren't really alone out there. So what I'm saying is, dive a little bit deeper. Listen to the songs filtering down from the Trader Joe's speakers and question where it came from. I didn't know much about Greg Holden until he came over and told me his story. And yeah, he does have great hair, but I'm glad I got to know him better. So without further ado, here he is now, Greg Holden. you introduce yourself to the radio audience? My name is Greg Holden, and I am from the north of England, and now I live in Los Angeles, California. Now, when you say the north of England, you probably grew up there most, but you were born in Scotland, right? I was. I was born in Aberdeen in Scotland. I grew up near Manchester. But you didn't say you were Scottish. No. I just say British at this point, because I left Scotland when I was three, so I feel like I would be offending true Scots if I called myself Scottish. But, but I was born in Scotland. My parents are Scottish. Everybody, I come from. But that's total an interesting Scottish distinction yeah. that you didn't say that. Yeah, because I don't have an accent, and uh, so I, I wish I did. I wish I'd held on, held on to my Scottish accent. That would be I mean, I think most girls find any British esque accent somewhat dreamy. <laughs> true, true to an extent. <laughs> I think they always expect me to sound like Hugh Grant, but they were very disappointed when I sound like Billy Elliot. <laughs> And so you've steadily been moving west, Yes, yeah, right? so I'm, I'm going to be in Hawaii next. And yeah, so it's it like you went... As far from my home as I can get. Kind of to Brighton and London mm-hmm. and then New York yeah. and then L.A. Exactly. And then we'll see you in yeah, Indonesia you. next yeah. year. <laughs> so as far as I can get from my home while still being in an English-speaking country. Are your folks missing you yeah. being so far? Totally. Yeah, but they, I th- they're used to it now. I've been away for 10 years, so they're sort of used to me being away. I get I get home every every year. What was the first band that you fo- founded? I the first band that I founded was a band called uh, Sever All Ties. Sever we were All a hardcore Ties. band. Hardcore like punk rock or like like metal metal punk yeah. Nice. It was fun. I still love. How old were you? I was nineteen years old. Started playing guitar when I was eighteen. Immediately started playing. That's punk, a bit late. Kind I was of. late to the game. Yeah, started playing punk songs for, well, playing in punk bands, and I started an indie band when I was twenty-one, uh, and then when I was twenty-two, I moved to Brighton and decided that I wanted to do it on my own. I'm too much of a control freak to be in a band, hmm. so I just thought I would go out. It is like having an apartment with like six roommates. Yeah, exactly. And I just I'm not prepared to compromise my the songs that I write, so I just was butting heads with everybody I was in a band with. So it's like, all right, time to do this by myself. So your newest record is called World War Me. Mm-hmm. Um, did Butch Walker record the whole thing or something? No, some of it? Uh, I recorded the whole thing. He, okay. he recorded one song. Uh, we began the record. Uh, we did a song called On the Run. 
and that was going to be the start of the record. But when I was signed to Warner Brothers, and then right before Butch and I went to make the record here in Santa Monica, actually, uh, I got dropped. So all the money went away, and I was like, well, I can't afford Butch Walker anymore. Yeah. I guess I'm going to do this on my own. Uh, so I had a studio at home any, anyway. And uh, it was one of those moments where I was like, well, it's now or never. I should probably just uh, suck it up and make this record by myself. I mean, you hear these stories about people sort of getting that big break, mm-hmm. right? And Warner Brothers is, is one of the big fish. Mm-hmm. And then the big fish drops you out of their mouth. Yeah. And then you're back on your own, mm-hmm. square one. You know, what was that feeling like? It's, it's a little... It's a little bit of a lonely feeling because, you know, you start getting used to having a team. You start getting used to having budgets and being able to go on the road with your band. And being dropped was sort of, it was very disappointing. But at the same time, it was liberating because I think the bureaucracy of being on a major label is just nothing ever gets done. Yeah. And by the time the decision's been made and passed through all this various... How many people had to sign off on each thing you were doing? It's too many, you yeah. know. And so when an idea comes along, it's it's... By the time it gets uh, agreed upon, it's it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter anymore. I just, I don't know how bands are going to be able to bridge the gap between having the big budget, you know, full radio assault, you know, getting your song in every medium to everyone at the same time, which is kind of how the pop stardom Mm -hmm. thing is able to happen. Yeah. And then the do-it-yourself, hope-for-the-best kind of thing yeah because even like small record labels like we're on it's pretty much like hope and pray that people pay attention of course and And they're doing their best but uh there's forty thousand songs come out every friday yeah like how the hell are you supposed to yeah even stand out even a little bit you know and the problem is when you're signed to a major label you might sell twenty thousand records which is amazing if you're an independent artist but if you're on a major label and they've spent half a million dollars on your record it's uh it's just a, it's a failure for them, so you get dropped, you know. And you've had some, you know, success as a songwriter yeah. for other folks, yeah. you know. I know my my mom in particular will be very thrilled that you wrote <laughs> Philip Phillips's home. It's like many moms are. <laughs> she's like gone to see him like multiple really? times, like oh as like a, a true fangirl, you know. That's incredible. And she keeps hoping in some way that like my music will like rise to that level and it's like yeah but I'm not gonna be on American Idol right he's a way better looking guy he's like you know it's like it's one of those things where I'm gonna have to do it my own way of course you know and the irony is I, I don't like those shows I've never yeah. I, you know when that song was requested for American Idol I was sort of perplexed I was like yeah. why this one this yeah. is a, this is like the least likely American Idol finale song but ever. the fo- kind of folk pop is is risen to the top of this yeah. sort of uh, at that time, especially pop world, yeah. which is awesome. Yeah, but also like there becomes a clicheness about I don't know Mumford and Sons Lumineers, where it's like, are is everyone who's got an acoustic guitar sort of trying to have the right, whole right? And that was really moment. frustrating as well because there was a lot of comparisons were drawn to that song and Mumford and Sons, and there was one guy, one of the members of Mumford and Sons, made a comment about, oh, when did we write this song? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. And I was like, fuck you, dude. Like, I, I've been listening to Flogging Molly and the Pogues, mm-hmm. like, for for a decade, you know, and yeah. I, I love those bands. And um, I don't know why Mumford and Sons decided that just because they're the guys that were the kick drum and the acoustic guitars that they somehow invented that genre of music. I yeah. don't um, Nothing against Mumford and Sons. I think they're a great band, but I, that was always, I thought that was a little bit funny. I I always wish that, like, there could be a little bit, 
of a wider door to go through for sort of acoustic minded bands. Yeah. Right. You know, because it always seems like, well, at the top of some sort of chart or whatever, you get maybe one band like Lumineers yeah. and Mumford and then nothing else, nothing else for yeah. years. You know, and then if you if you were even remotely close to that style of music, you just get thrown into the same pot as yeah as that band because we're all doing our own. Oh, you're thing. Ed Sheeran. You're like Ed Sheeran, right? You've got yeah. an acoustic guitar and yeah. and skin. Like you're <laughs> clearly like Ed Sheeran. It's like no, like there was a bigger scale of music going yeah. around. But I was asking you earlier <laughs> a weird question, but I for some reason I want to ask it again. Oh no, <laughs> your superhero power, if you were a superhero, would be what? It's a weird power, and I don't know why I'm thinking about this. But if there is ever an awkward moment in a room or if there's ever, like, tension, I have this ability to suck the tension right out of the room and create, like, a peaceful vibe. Mm. I don't like conflict. I've grown up my whole life being scared of conflict. So whenever there's a contentious moment... Maybe, like, the mediator man? Yeah, yeah. Like, I have this ability to just make everybody, like, laugh or feel comfortable again. It's like a a desire. It's like a need for me. It's Mm. not really a superpower. Yeah. But I have this incredible need to keep the peace in my life. Well, you said yourself that you knew pretty early on that you wanted to do music on your own Mm -hmm. as the sort of sole voice, you know. And when I read uh, Springsteen's book uh, recently, it was like he realized pretty quickly that if he didn't be the sort of benevolent dictator, he would not be able to be... In music, right? You know, it would be too painful for him. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that there's a fine line between being the driver of your own creative train Mm -hmm. and not plowing over everyone who has interesting ideas. Yeah, that's very important. And I think that I've never wanted to do that to anybody creative, and I've never wanted to take anybody out on my way to where I need to be. You know, and I think that the world we live in now, especially, I think that it. That is in the air, that sort of, I must win at all, like no matter what the cost, that people are very willing to just drive people, run straight over people to get to where they need to go. And I think the world would be a slightly better place if we also had a little compassion for each other and realized that we're all trying to go in the same direction, you know? Do you feel like uh, being a Brit far away from home that, you know, if you weigh in about stuff, you know, back in your home country that people are like, well... You're an American now. Yeah, yeah. I, I know, yes. Yeah, and I, I feel more of an American now. I've been here longer in my adult life than I was in England, so I feel I do feel more connected to American politics than I do even in England. So hmm. I, I, I joke and say, I don't know what's going on with Brexit, but neither does anybody. Yeah. Neither do the people controlling it. They don't know what's going on either. But, uh, you know, I'm sort of trying to pay attention because it, it directly affects me. Like, I want to live in Europe one day, not in England. And if Brexit happens... that makes my life more difficult. So it does affect me. Um, You know, I don't even know what the rules are going to be for me to go on this tour that I'm going on in two weeks to Europe. Like, I I don't know, because Brexit will have, we don't know if Brexit's going to happen, what's going to happen. So it's, it's, that's a little bit of a shit show. Yeah, we're in theory going to tour Europe kind of as a full extensive tour for the first time in the fall. Oh, cool. Um, And a little bit of the UK at the end, I think. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm curious how it's all going to work now, yeah. uh, especially then going into England. Yeah. You know, um, and I know when we went to England for the first time, they were saying that 
we had to get like these sponsorship papers. Yeah. They're like, or like you had to pay a lawyer over there to like write up this thing. Yeah. And we paid like 800 pounds to get this thing. Wow. And then no one asked for it. Ugh. When we got there and it was like, were we scammed or was it like they were just not no, caring pretty, that day? No, they can be strict. You maybe yeah. just got lucky. Yeah. They're pretty strict about it. I'm taking two Americans over in the... It's really hard for, for European bands to come to the States, Oh, right? tell me about it, man. I mean, I've, you know, I'm on a green card now, uh, but I was on visas before that for the last nine years. I was getting O-1 visas the whole time and that was really difficult and they have to spend a lot of money. And that's the other thing about the whole immigration thing. It's like, oh, they're flooding into the country and they're yeah. taking our jobs. It's so like, difficult. No, 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 no. My green card cost me $15,000. I'm like, I had to fill in like years of paperwork and like $15,000 yeah it's, I mean maybe it wasn't quite that but it was close to that in the end which kidney uh, did you sell my left one Sweet. yeah um, but like it's not easy to get into this country yeah that's a myth like it's very difficult <laughs> yeah. very expensive I'm amazed that these bands come over here and are able to come over here financially yeah, yeah. I mean uh, when bands come to like South by Southwest and stuff yeah you're like what like, how is this making any sense for you well, they're hoping someone will write about them. I mean, yeah. the United States still is this sort of like, if you make it here, you've really made yeah, it yeah. type situation. Because we're obviously a vast country, you know, with so many different markets. And um, honestly, as a, as a touring band, you can do pretty well just doing well in five, you know, to ten markets. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to just play in Germany. Like, if you, you can yeah. just have a career just in touring in Germany. Is Germany awesome? Yeah, Germany's rad. And they still love singer-songwriters there. They're not over it yet, so <laughs> I keep going back. Don't ever get over it, Germany. Please don't get over me. Where are your favorite places in Germany to play? Uh, Hamburg and Cologne. Mm. Two beautiful cities. Mm. I love playing there. I'll be there, in, uh, I'll be there in May. I'll have to tell our, our people. Tell your German fan base. <laughs> All ten of you. <laughs> It is, it is kind of amazing, and we're lucky, obviously, that the English language is sort of the language of rock and roll. Yeah, that's true. You know, um, which country that you've played has had the largest uh, language barrier? I was recently in Brazil. I played a, show, a couple of shows in Brazil. Mm. People speak great English there, though. It's, the problem is with my, my accent and the speed that I talk, and my voice is really deep. People can't even understand me in English-speaking countries, never mind in foreign-speaking countries. What was Brazil like? Awesome. It was beautiful. Did you go to the beach? I did. Yeah, I was in Rio for a few days. Played a show, the show there. I played a couple of shows in Sao Paulo. I actually played in Argentina as well. I played in uh, Buenos Aires. Did you get a nice, nice steak dinner? Well, I'm vegetarian. Uh, How dare you? However, I did eat a steak in Argentina. <laughs> my you friends, broke your vows? My friends took me out. And they took us to the steakhouse, and the only thing that I could eat on the menu was uh, sautéed spinach. And I was like, you know what? Went in Rome. So I did it. And I regret it. <laughs> you did? Yeah. It tasted like blood. It's yeah. so funny. Like, I, I used to eat meat. My whole, my whole life I ate meat, and I haven't eaten meat for like six years, seven years. And now I just I don't have a taste for it. It tastes like iron. What is your favorite thing to cook at home? Italian food. I make my own pizza dough and pizza sauces, and I make mm. my own pasta. And uh, Big, big fan of Italian food. So you're pro-carbs is what you're saying. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yep, make my own bread. I'm definitely pro-carbs. And yet you can't see him, but he's a very fit-looking individual. <laughs> so what is your workout plan? I do a lot of yoga. And I eat well. I'm so I Californian now. I know, man. I know. Well, I did yoga in New York, so I, I brought it with me. But I, uh, 
I do uh, I do enjoy yoga. That's the least cool thing I've ever said in an interview. I also enjoy yoga. Oh, good. Okay, then we're both on the same page. Though I've had this uh, kind of freak ankle injury that's come back uh, where... I've heard those two, actually. Out of the blue, my left ankle, which I sprained in college like over 10 years oh, ago. Yeah. But I have exactly the same story. That's so funny. Uh, it's hard to say if it's like after yoga or after some sort of strenuous stretching type thing where it'll just lock up in the middle of the night and I can huh. barely walk on it for a few days. Um, and I have to go to the chiropractor and the acupuncturist oh, yeah, and, and it has to be kind of like reopened or something. Huh. And it's super painful. Um, Do you go hot at yoga? Not really, okay. but uh, I, and I don't even know if that's what it is. But yoga can only help it, I think, as long as it's, yeah. you're doing it right. You also have an ankle injury. Yeah, I, f- I, I was drunk when I was t- in my twenties, and I fell off a balcony Oof. and hit some steps on the way down. I fell like two stories. Jesus! I didn't break my ankle, but I severely how did you not die? <laughs> severely damaged it, uh, and it still hurts to this day every now and again, especially when it's cold. Have you ever uh, had a accident on stage during a show? One time when I was in a punk band, I ran straight. There was a stage in my hometown. Uh, there was a venue in my hometown that on the stage they had this big metal pipe, like a, uh, I think it was a heating pipe. One time I ran straight into it, knocked myself out. Knocked yourself out on yeah, stage? Yeah, just like fell to the ground. That is pretty punk rock. Yeah, though. it was pretty cool. I w- the first band I was in uh, was called Labyrinth. It was like a punk band in Great. Chicago. And I remember the drummer had like a 103 degree fever. Oh my God. And he was like, no, it's fine. Like we're going to play the show tonight. Oh my God, like, so punk. Like nothing will stop us yeah. from playing this show. <laughs> and then like three songs like, tw- you know, in, he just like collapsed. Oh my God. And like his mom was like, oh my God. <laughs> the least punk. Why it goes from the most this? punk thing yeah. ever to the least punk thing ever. Well, it was like all of our parents would come <laughs> to our shows. It wasn't that punk rock, yeah. but we like wanted it to be. Totally. You know? I get it. <clears throat> What do you think <laughs> if you started a punk band now? Uh-huh. I've been thinking little, about it. When you're a little more older and wiser, what would it be called? Fleetwood Slack. Ooh, yeah. I'm seeing a book here that is called Irish Sagas and Folk Tales. So your punk band name is going to be whatever I come All right. at in this page. It's going to be Healing Oils. Oh, wow. That okay. Is a- that is a terrible band for a terrible name for a punk. Let's try one more. All right, one more. It's going to be High King. That's better. That's not bad. That's a good name. All right, mine is going to be Wind Whining. <laughs> mm. Let's try one more. Yeah, you need to do another one. Mine is The Warrior's Return. Oh, that's a good one. Mm. Yeah, that's right. a good one. That sounds more like a Lamb of God style band, like, like yep. a Celtic metal band. What is the music that you're listening to now? Is there an artist that is really, uh, I'm really knocking loving, you out? I'm really loving this band called Barry right now. B-A-R-I-E. Huh. Where are they from? I have no idea. I think California. Hmm. I heard them on the radio the other day. I, got, I downloaded their album. Well, what's, it's not out yet. I downloaded a couple of tracks that are available. I'm also living Phoebe Bridges. Hmm. Barry. B- yeah, there it is. They have a song called Dodge Ealing, which uh, is really cool. They're from Brooklyn. Oh, okay. Uh, a couple ladies in the band. That's right. They, they have a song called Dodge Ealing. They look really very normcore. They do look normcore, don't they? If you could live half the year in one place and half the year in another place, anywhere in the world, where would it be? I would live on the Amalfi Coast in uh, Italy in the summer. 
Okay. Now come and live in California. Right. Maybe I'll just do it. I feel, I feel. I feel like I'm doing it. I feel it's a nice compliment. Yeah. To us here in California. <laughs> yeah. I love. I love. I love being in California uh, when it's not summer. Summers here, they choke me a little bit. That's when I mean, you, you live, live in Santa the Monica. Beach. I live in the east on the yeah. east side. Do you have so air conditioning? I do. Thank, Thank God. God. Yeah. yeah. The uh, the song that you have that I really enjoyed. It's the newest. Uh, the newest record. The first track. Uh, Nothing changes. Oh yeah. Um, you have these three things that you're saying in the song that I really like. You know, I know it's gonna hurt, and I'm gonna t- keep doing the work. Yeah. And I've been wasting a lot of time. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that no one wants to talk about as artists and uh, people who have devoted their life to be creative mm-hmm. uh, in that we still need like deadlines and structure. Yeah. And sometimes when you're left to your own devices, you don't know how to do that. Totally. You that's know? why my album's called World War Me is because this year or the year that I made it last year, you know, I was sort of, Lost. I was on my own. I fired my manager at the beginning of this year. I was with him for 11 years. Uh, I was making this record by myself. So I was, you know, procrastinating. I had no deadline. I had no goals. I didn't know when the songs were finished. I had no one producer telling me, like, this is done. Stop trying to make this better. And so I just went into this internal nightmare inside of my brain. Uh, You start doubting your... Questioning everything, re-recording songs, because I've I've listened to it so many times that I can't hear it, that same version anymore. So I had to... I had to just scrap it when maybe it was great. I just couldn't hear it, you know, and making an entire record by myself was so difficult. I, I'm probably not going to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> but it was a learning process. I think the trick is to set yourself, a, de- a, a you know, for one song, be like, okay, I've got two days. And mm. whatever's there at the end of these two days is is the finished version. Read me the, read me the first couple of verses of that song. I'm going to... Dig up the pain, stop burying my feelings. Uh, stand in the rain and let it all wash out. I'm going to clean up the dirt that's caught in my fingers. I know it's going to hurt. I know it's going to hurt. Keep going. Um, it's wasted time looking forward to redemption because uh, I know how to pray, but I don't have a God. And what good is heaven if I can't reach it? It won't help me now. I'll keep doing the work, but nothing changes. Mm. Yeah, and that is that is sort of the, the the almost the biggest fear I think as an artist, you know. What if it doesn't work? You keep sort of hammering away at this masterpiece, you know, that you hope will come out. Yeah. And it's like, what if it's not good enough? Right. You know, like what if no one cares? What if no one cares? And nowadays, yeah. there is so much music coming out that maybe people could care if they could even if it could even reach those people. Yeah. But now we're fighting the age of algorithms and mass consumption and 40,000 songs coming out every Friday. It's like, you could write the best song in the world. You could you could release, you could have the next Here Comes the Sun and no one, it's possible no one will ever hear it. I think almost there has to be a, a certain acceptance, like a Buddha-like acceptance of your smallness in the universe, yeah. right? And, I, and my wife, who's an actor, was saying that like, you know, talking to people who are one step above her or whatever, it's like, it doesn't actually get easier. No. Right? Because eventually, it's like, yeah, I got a TV show and blah, blah, blah. But then that TV show ends and they still don't really care about you. Yeah. Unless, you know, you sort of have this right place, right time situation. Of course. And it can't be the right place and the right time for everyone at once. No. And forever in your career either. And I think that I've started to come to peace with, with probably in the last... 
six to eight months and like that I should just start doing this for myself yeah and just making music for myself and the people that are already listening and I, instead of trying to reach a, a bigger fan base I want to cultivate the fan base that I have give them what they want and sort of focus on that rather than being like I need to be the next big thing because it's just like well and you've had actually some success with some of your more personal sort of dark lyric songs yeah. I mean like the Philip Phillips home you said it's about suicide yeah it's like that would be the last thing you would imagine would be getting played in middle America totally. like my mom singing along in her car. Yeah. You know, but the personal deeper, darker stuff taps into something that is important. I agree. You know, and I think a lot of times when I hear groups and I do this myself, like we're like, I want to have a hook song so people will buy it. Yeah. I can hear that in the writing. Yeah. Like you're trying to have this be in a supermarket mm -hmm. PA system. Yeah, you can hear it. You can feel it. It's you empty. You feel the singer when they don't feel it either. You, there's no passion in it. I've heard it myself when I've written pop songs or done sessions for pop artists where I've sang the demo and I'm just like, want to throw up my in my mouth a little bit. You know, I'm <laughs> like, did I really do this? Oh, I feel I need to take a shower now. Yeah, it just feels weird. But you know, we've got to make a living. Yeah, we've all got to try and do what pays the bills. What is the thing that brings you an actual living? Is it the royalties from songs you've written for other people? Yeah. Yeah. Touring is not bringing any money. Releasing records as a solo artist is not bringing in any money either. It's, uh, I'm, I'm grateful that I had a, a couple of successful songs that are bringing in royalty money because I don't know what I'd be and doing. And placement and commercials yeah, and stuff exactly. like that? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Publishing is what's paying my life right now. Thank and God. I'm very grateful for it. What would you say for <clears throat> artists that are trying to make it? Like, what is the best way to sort of be out there to tour and to write songs that you care about, but also try to make some money? Is it is own it, your masters? Yeah, own your masters. Own try and own your publishing if you can. Yeah, they're the only things that are worth anything. And get good at what you do. <laughs> so they're trying to get like a quick fix, and you know rise to the top really really quickly I think everyone sort of not everyone I'm not going to say that I think there's a sort of expectation these days that fame comes very quickly and success comes very quickly and you have to master your craft if you want to have any staying power and success looks different than people think yeah you it's know? smoke and mirrors on Instagram man if you've got a million followers who gives a shit like it doesn't mean yeah. anything about touring it doesn't help you touring necessarily yeah. it doesn't it doesn't make you more fulfilled as a person it's just this weird number that everyone sort of latches onto but it's not real what do you think is the reason people come to your shows because it's a genuine experience I'm not trying to be someone else being very much myself and I'm, I connect with the audience I make sure they're part of the show I don't just sit there on stage and sing to them I get them involved I make it it's a team effort in my shows I mean that's kind of a thing that I think people at audiences need right now is to be part of the conversation. Yeah, exactly. Right. And you know, you see some of these legacy artists, you know, these celebrity, they're celebrities at a mm -hmm. certain point playing music and they're like, I don't talk to the audience anymore. Yeah. I right? get that. Or I, I spend don't. too much time talking to the audience. Well, I think, yes, I think sometimes we try too hard yeah. as independent artists, but it, it definitely makes me sad when I see people who have a devoted fan base who don't feel the need to put on a show yeah, anymore. I agree. Yeah. But they're still touring to make the money. Right. And you're like... Bob Dylan's the worst these, for that. These people have paid a bunch of money 
to listen to your words. Yeah. You know, like that is an, not an, only an honor. It's almost like a, a sort of spiritual connection. Exactly. Where yeah, like yeah. your shit means something when, to them. When it's not appreciated by the artist, I'm always very saddened by that. Yeah. It's like, this is the dream, man. This is the coolest thing that will ever happen to you in your whole life. And your entire life sort of has come to be because of these people. You're not willing to say hello? Like, <laughs> what the fuck? But there's also the other side where, like, that sort of rock and roll, I don't care about you thing is what, like, makes people look cool True. or something. I feel, like th- those I've days, never quite... I feel like those days are gone, though. Yeah. That, that was, like, happened in the 60s and 70s, like, when people didn't care and they chased, people met artists at the airport and chased yeah. them through the streets. I think now with the social media, like, people get mad if you don't re- reply to them on Instagram. Yeah. You know, they're like... There's like this whole other level of communication now yeah. that wasn't there before. So the, mis- the mystery is gone now. Is there a big or known artist that you've worked with or you've talked to that really gave you interesting advice? No. But I did once get to perform for Tom Petty. For an, him? At an award ceremony. He was mm. in the front row and I got to meet him afterwards. Mm. He told me that it was a great song. Nice. And that I'd done a great job performing it. And that was like a very validating moment in my you life. You played one of your songs? I played Home. Oh, yeah. Philip Phillips song. It was an ASCAP award ceremony. Mm. But Tom Petty's like my idol. Mm. So to be sort of congratulated by my idol was very, very, very validating and very inspir- inspiring. I was able to he see. Did not give me him. any advice though? I wish he did. Yeah. Tom, from far in heaven. Yeah. What would you come say down to me and now? Yeah, he was a master. He was a master songwriter. <clears throat> What's your favorite Petty song? Ooh, that's a tough one. I love <laughs> I love Insider mm. with Stevie Nicks. Mm. That's a beautiful song. And uh, I also really like uh, Coming Back to You. That's it. Mm. Yeah, I love that song. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to challenge our creative minds. Uh-oh. So first, I want you to not think of anything and then say the first thing that comes to your mind when I say Wedding Veil. Disaster. Mm. Green. Thumb. Hellfire. Mel. Music. <laughs> I was, at first I said, you're like, Mel? Metal. Yeah. Music. <laughs> Plane crash. Zimbabwe? Mm. I don't know why that, why that, that mm. was weird. Maybe it was the Ethiopia thing that just Yeah, happened. that was weird. Tattoo. Brooklyn. Do you get all your tattoos at the same place? Most of them, yeah. I got to go down Santoro. You cannot see this on the radio, but there's some really nice ink going on. Like I see a cactus. Yeah, I just got this in Texas this, uh, in September, actually. That's in nice. Austin, in Austin. What it does it say underneath that? No Direction Home, which mm. I also got in Austin 10 years ago. Mm. And I see... Is that a heart? This is a heart. This yeah. is a very emo tattoo from my uh, teenage years. You got that when you were a teenager? Yeah. My heart on my sleeve. Uh, mm, what'd your mom think about that? She was horrified. <laughs> yeah. How could you? Uh, she's like, what are you going to do when it comes to getting a job? I'm like, I'm never getting a job, mom. <laughs> Except I had so many jobs, but what was I your, always knew I was going to be in a creative, the creative industry. What was the worst job you had? I worked at McDonald's. That was horrible. In England? Yeah. Wow. And I worked for a travel insurance company in, in England, too, selling travel insurance over the phone. That was horrendous. Like, how bad is the food at McDonald's? 
Or is it like not I mean, as bad as people think? I mean, dude, I was 18, so I was loving it. Yeah. I just, oh, wow. I just <laughs> literally just, wow. <laughs> I didn't even mean to do that. Damn it, Justin Timberlake. Wow, that was amazing. Uh, so I loved it. Yeah. It, was, it was McDonald's Still as a my teenager. Favorite fries. Like, yeah. Those fries let me down these days. The American fries aren't as good as the ones in Europe. They still have the beef tallow over there? I don't know what that is. Supposedly, my wife and people who are a little older claim that McDonald's completely changed their, oh, their recipe. Malcolm Gladwell did a thing on that. Right. And I don't really remember a change. Maybe I was too little, but I feel like they're still pretty damn good when they're hot. Are they? I've been pretty disappointed with McDonald's fries these days. All right. Well, you were you know, on the inside... You know, you yes, know. changed since I left. <laughs> Gone downhill. Not when they were as as good as they could be when I dipped them. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny is the reason I play guitar, or the reason I, uh, yeah, the reason I sort of chased a career in music is when I worked at McDonald's. One of the managers there handed me a bunch of Bob Dylan CDs right when I was picking up the guitar, and that's that's how I learned about songwriting. And that was all McDonald's. If I never had that job, I may never be. I would, might not be sitting here now. Thank you, McDonald's. Yeah, thank you, McDonald's. Okay. Wait, I have to ask you about the first thing I asked you. I said, no, I said wedding veil, and you said disaster. Oh, God. Have you been married? Uh, yeah, I got married uh, six months ago, and I'm already not married again. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm sorry to bring that up. Yeah, that's all right. It's a weird time right now. Sounds like uh, at least three albums will be coming from that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'm sure they will. Well, I think we need to write it out. I think we need to write the cobwebs out of our brain real quick. All right. And then we'll play a song. So I'm going to give you this notepad. All right. And we're going to go from the very first line what do we do? together. Okay. We'll see what happens. What do we do? So the line is, the lion jumped over the fence. And then we go from there. Oh. And we're back. The point is not that it's good. It's about what comes out. Yeah. You want to go or you want me to go? Uh, I feel like yours is going to be better than mine, so I should go. Okay. Mine is actually, it's funny, it's about my honeymoon. Well, let's just uh, see what happens. All right, so stop me off. The lion jumped over the fence. And right as the wanako made its way over the horizon, the lion had a hold of its neck. I watched in horror as the brutal reality of nature and the wild revealed itself before my very eyes. I was standing in the middle of the Patagonian wilderness, witnessing a murder. Thankfully, I made the decision to turn away, so my eyes were spared the blood and flesh and fear. But the noise still haunts me today. I walked away from that moment feeling grateful that the lion had chosen the Wanako, and not me. As once the adrenaline had worn off, I remembered that huge predator had been only a few feet from me, staring into my eyes before jumping over said fence. What a honeymoon that was. Wait, what is a wanako? It's a little, it looks like a, a, a deer, an orange and white deer. Oh. Is that like a... It's like a weird thing uh, in Argentinian creature. Oh. I was in Chile. Okay, I was like... I was first park. I thought it was like a Winnebago. I know, like I should a, probably... Like an like, RV. I should probably preface that, but yeah, the, a wanako is a little creature in, in, in Patagonia. That's awesome. They look like a... You know, they look like weird-looking deers. Okay, let's see what happened with right. me. The lion jumped over the fence... Peter didn't think it was a real lion, of course. Those majestic beasts had surely been slaughtered and eaten during the Fourth World War when the plagues and epidemics had grown past the point of government control. 
but as this mechanical, heaving creature bounded towards him on the sidewalk, Peter felt a primordial, bone-deep fear, like his Neanderthal ancestors must have felt in the savannas thousands of years ago, and he started running, past his neighbor's house and behind a lamppost to catch his breath. To his surprise, the mechanical lion did not get zapped back into his enclosure, but tore past him and began chasing a little girl on a bicycle. Surely this man-made lion pet would not devour this innocent girl, Peter thought to himself. After all, it was controlled by an algorithm inside the house computer bay. But indeed, the lion kept running and leapt onto the small girl and ate her in one bite, leaving only her sequined moccasins behind. But then the lion turned and looked Peter right in the eye. It's okay, it's okay, boy, Peter said. I won't report you, I swear. And he pointed back to the fence lawn that the lion had come from. Just go on back, I won't say a word. Wow, I'm really glad I went first. <laughs> that was great. I feel like I've maybe been watching too much Black Mirror. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> Let's play a song, what do you say? Oh yeah, okay. I wasn't prepared. I wasn't thinking I was going to play a song, so my voice is terrible, I'm sorry. Your voice will sound wonderful. I'm not your enemy. 
I'm not your enemy Only love can save us now save us now oh only love can save us now oh only love can save us now I'm not your enemy just an unfamiliar friend You might not recognize me from before the war began How could you know after everything they told you I'm not your enemy I'm not your enemy I'm not your enemy Big thanks to Greg Holden for coming over and talking with me. And uh, you can go to his website, gregholdenonline.com, for his music and his tour dates. His newest record is called World War Me, and uh, it's on vinyl. You can get it on his website. It sounds delicious. And if you mosey over to the bluegrasssituation.com, you'll see that Greg Holden was Balin's Brit pick back in March. That means that the Bluegrass Situation is covering all sorts of ground, including all over England and Scotland and beyond. And uh, they talk about Greg's single, The Lost Boy, which was inspired by Dave Eggers' book, What is the What?, about Sudanese refugees. And that song raised tens of thousands of dollars for the Red Cross and helped build schools in Africa. What a dude record this now late at night at a hotel in the middle of Ohio somewhere. We had a day off. We drove all the way from upstate New York through Pennsylvania, stopped at Lake Erie and dipped our toes in. It was like a tropical paradise out there, I swear to God. And uh, we're going to be playing some crazy uh, festivals that we've never done before, including uh, the Our Town uh, Festival, which is in Reno, Nevada. That's free on July 8th. And uh, my gang, Dust Bowl Revival, will be all over the place in July. We're going to be playing Seattle at Tractor Tavern on the 21st and then we'll be playing a brand new festival we've never tried called the Red Ants Pants Fest which is in Sulphur Springs, Montana near Bozeman Uh, I believe that's the 28th of July and then we will be at Appaloosa Fest in Virginia on the 30th of August and Rhythm and Roots Fest in Rhode Island on Labor Day weekend and guess what we're going to Europe in October and November so uh, check it all out at uh, dustbowlrevival.com if you're like me and stuck on the road driving hours and hours each day podcasts are like lifeblood to your brain so if you haven't told someone about our humble podcast show on the road tell them now it'll do us so much good and I want to tell you about a couple of my favorite podcasts that I listen to all the time such as Hidden Brain by NPR good lord I learned so many things on this show about psychology and behavior and how people can change or never change at all. Or maybe Ear Hustle. Man, 
you think you know about the prison system and the people who live behind bars, but you really don't. And these guys take you inside and they get personal and you find out how it really works inside San Quentin in California. And lastly, uh, check out 20,000 Hertz, which is about how sounds are made and how sound effects and movie music and scores and all the things that you maybe never think about, like the bing on an elevator button, how that is created. It's really cool. Check it out. The Show on the Road is hosted by me, Zach Lupiton, and produced by the handsome Hawaiian Chris Jacobs with support from the Bluegrass Situation team. The Show on the Road is a part of the BGS Podcast Network. This is Zach Lupiton. See you on the trail. Bowie, Dylan, Marley. You've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.